Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's been a while since we've been in this room. Who remembers this room from a couple years ago? You remember that? Yeah, these are the good old days here. So, uh, thank you guys for making that adjustment for today. Uh, also, if you didn't get, if you didn't see the message on GroupMe, the uh, main AC in the sanctuary is not working today. I know that's what you want to hear right before a service. So, if you hear the fans in the hallway. Zach and Ian and others have got some, the AC's working the whole way, you can feel that. So we're trying to blow uh, the air into the main room, and hopefully it won't be too bad. It's one of those days you're really thankful for clouds, right, for cloudiness, because it looks like it's not going to be as hot as it has been some of the previous uh, Sundays. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open with us to Romans chapter 5, and while we'll be in several passages, we'll, we'll sort of let Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 be a little bit of our background for some of what we'll do today. To be fo- a little bit more focused, we are going to begin chapter uh, 23 of uh, Grudem's book here on sanctification, which is just a fancy word for becoming more like Jesus, uh, growing in holiness, sanctification, and um, that's on page 326 if you have the, the big white book if you want to turn there as well, but we're, we're planning to spend two weeks on the topic of sanctification because... Yeah, it's kind of a significant part of, you know, it's kind of the whole Christian life, is sanctification. How do, we, how do we live as Christians? How do we grow in Christ-likeness and all those kinds of things? Uh, Papa Fred, could you, could you pray for us? And then, Greg, could you sort of just open the topic up a little bit and sort of give a little bit of a, a, an introductory word about sanctification? Sure. <laughs> okay. Papa Fred? Uh, Father, uh, thank you, Lord, um, for the opportunity to pray, for the opportunity to open uh, Grudem, uh, to open the Word, and to talk about sanctification, uh, that's your process. Um, of, and uh, you led us to this process through redemption, through calling a people uh, of your own, through electing us, through uh, um, justifying us. And you called us and justified us. And, and now you're going to sanctify us. And, and, and that's the should be the the longest process in our life and it's uh, a slow process uh, and help us this morning your holy spirit uh, to um, properly teach us lead us guide us as we open your word in jesus name amen all right um, i'll do my best on this i feel like my mind's in a hundred different places right now so hopefully it will land on the stuff it needs to uh to land on. Um, starting in Romans, like, uh, like we're going to do, uh, is significant because uh, we need to make sure we understand that sanctification is a result of justification. Um, we've been talking about justification, we talked about adoption, um, but sanctification is what starts taking place after God gives us new life, after we are declared righteous. Um, and so let's set it in its proper context. Sanctification is something a believer in Christ experiences. Um, non-believers are not being sanctified. This is something, uh, it's a result of the Holy Spirit working in the life of the believer. And as Mark already said, you know, God is, is making us more like Christ. He's making us more holy. Literally to sanctify means to set apart as holy. So um, what we are going to be looking at is this process, this lifelong process, um, by which God is making us more like Christ and less like the world, less like our old sinful selves. Um, And as we'll see, we never are perfected in this in this life. Um, But it is something that I am convinced we grow in. 
there's no such thing as a permanently stagnant Christian. Um, and I think we'll see why as we look through all of this. Um, but there will be growth. Um, it's uneven at times. It's, it's ups, it's downs, like a roller coaster it feels like for some of us at points. Uh, but it is always generally trending upward. Okay, We're progressing in our Christ-likeness, progressing in being set apart from the world and dedicated to God. That's about the best I can give without like diving into No, that's everything. great. And another word there on that is the, the word sanctification can be used in different ways in the New mm-hmm. Testament, which can make it confusing because there is such a thing as positional sanctification. This, this is going to get a little confusing. You've got positional sanctification and you've got progressive sanctification. And sometimes we're just spoken of as being already fully sanctified. We are saints in Christ. We are holy in Christ. So in a sense, we are positionally holy. We are, we are set apart as holy in Christ. That's over the moment we believe. So there's a sense in which we are set apart in Christ, we're made holy in Christ, and that is a once-for-all thing that's tied in with justification. Make it confusing here, but then on another side, it is also a lifelong process that we become more like, practically, what we actually are in our position. Does that make sense? So uh, we we progress in this. We, We grow in our sanctification over a lifetime, over decades, but we're always trying to become, in practice, who we are positionally, which is set apart and holy in Christ. So we, we ground everything on the fact that we are righteous in Christ, holy in Christ from the moment we believe, and now let's become what we are. Let, let's, let's be what we already are positionally, and let's grow in sanctification. Papa Fred? You know, that's, that's an important distinction, uh, becoming who we already are. And... Uh, and, and Grudem says, of course, uh, we and, and go, God cooperate, but I would say, yes, that's true, but he's, he's actually responsible for that. He's, he's the one that, that leads us. He's the one that guides us, his spirit. He's the one that uh, disciplines us when, we're, uh, when we venture off the path. Uh, he's our teacher. He's our guide. He's, our, uh, he's making this... Uh, positional uh, into a progressive that works, that that makes us more holy, that sanctifies us and sets us apart. I think it, I think it'd be helpful. Um, you probably heard this illustration before, um, but you know you think back like during the Cold War when you had the U.S. and the Soviet Union, um, and you had some people from the Soviet Union defect to the United States, um, and so you know they would defect, they would come over here. And they would seek asylum, citizenship, and all of that. And they can be, you know, made full citizens of the United States. But that doesn't mean immediately that they understand all that it means to be a citizen of the United States. They are a citizen. It it is a a legal fact that they are now a U.S. citizen. But it takes time. When you're used to one thing and you come over here, it's completely different. It's not overnight. It's months and years to retrain and to get new reflexes and new ways of responding to people, to situations, to government, to law, and everything. So that's kind of um, one illustration that might be helpful. It's like we're we're literally citizens of a new country and we become believers, citizens of a new kingdom, and we got to learn what it's like to be a citizen in that kingdom. Um, And so that's why we say something we grow in. Obviously, we should be learning. Um, and over time, we learn to live and think like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Yes. And so turn Romans 5. We'll just m- mention justification very briefly because we spent uh, the last couple weeks on that, but uh, a few weeks on that. Look at Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So th there's that right standing with God. If you skip down to a little later in chapter 5, look at verse 18 again. Therefore, as one trespass, referring to Adam, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam's, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the next question, 6-1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? Well, first of all, why would someone even reach this conclusion after hearing Paul preach justification, maybe Papa Fred, why would someone reach the conclusion, possibly, that you should go off and abuse grace, that you should sin like crazy to, to show how merciful God can be? Because of a misunderstanding of what grace is, I think. Uh, grace is not a license. Grace is a position. Grace is an unmerited favor which he's given us. So we should not take that and abuse it. Uh, it's, like, it's like a kid growing up and a parent gives them a little more a little more license, a little more leeway, longer leash, and then they say, wow, this is pretty cool. Now, I'm just not going to come home on curfew time, mm -hmm. you know. And so they're, they, we, we have, our hearts are still desperately wicked, and we want to we stretch the limits, whether it be with our parents or God. So, I, Would it be fair to say, I mean, Paul is preaching the gospel inspired by the Holy Spirit, and Paul knows that if you preach the gospel accurately, you will at times be accused of what is called antinomianism. Or that he was. Yes. And what, what, antinomianism just means you're, you're breaking the law, right? You're, you're against the law. Uh, the Greek word namos is the word law. So antinomian, you're against the law. And uh, so a sign that we are presenting the gospel correctly is if an unbeliever comes to the false conclusion, well, does that mean you can just sin all you want because you're saved by grace? That might be a sign that you're, you're actually communicating something correctly about the gospel, right? Because there, there's no way a Pharisee would ever be accused of that, right? If a Pharisee says, how are you right with God? Well, they say, well, you, you obey the law. You work really hard. And if you work hard enough and you do it long enough, you might make it to heaven if you're good enough. No one is ever going to say, well, are you just saying we should abuse grace and sin? Like, no one would ever reach that conclusion from legalism. But the gospel is so astonishingly gracious in the fact that we are saved apart from anything we do that people hear it and that some people will immediately conclude well let's just sin like crazy because like it doesn't matter what we do and Paul is going to correct that that's a false understanding but at least the gospel is so radical in, in, in that we are saved entirely by grace entirely by Christ apart from anything in us that people will often immediately jump to the conclusion that I can live uh, live in a way that opposes God's law well, what do you say to that Position, right? Well, I say uh, back in Romans 3 what Paul already said. It's interesting in Romans you'll see sometimes Paul will deal with something, then he'll break off to something else, and he'll come back to the same thought later and develop it more. Um, and where is this? Uh, look at Romans 3 verse 5, okay? Paul says, If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, I speak in a human way, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? And here's Paul's response, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. And what Paul's getting at is some people were taking the doctrine of grace in the gospel and saying, well, okay, grace is magnified, when it's shown to sinful people. So, 
if I'm if if I want to get more grace, I need to be more sinful. Therefore, the the worse of a sinner I can be, the more grace I'm going to get. And so that's what they're saying is happening here. And you know, okay, so you want more grace, live it up even more. And that is exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying. Like you said, if you're preaching it right, people are going to say, well, if it's not by anything you do, but in contradiction to what you do, then make the contradiction even greater. And it's like, no, that's not at all what Paul is saying. But here's the thing. As we get into Romans 6, Paul's last word there is so big for us. He says their condemnation is just. If we allow even the slightest inroad um, of the way of thinking that says, well, if I'm not saved by what I do, then what I do either doesn't matter or I can not care about what I do so that God's grace is even magnified even more. Um, if we allow even a little bit in there, we have departed from the gospel. Okay, Grace never encourages sin. I mean, by no means, as Paul says here, as he says in Romans 6.1, as Mark read, is one of the strongest negations you can get in the Greek language. Like, Paul's not going to cuss, but he would come close if he could. Just to say, <laughs> mm, no. Y'all know what goes in there. It's like that strong. Never reach that conclusion. Well, after that statement that you just read, their condemnation is just. He, yeah. just, he goes right back into reminding us that there's no one righteous, no, not one. Yeah. So, as to counter any sort of charge. Yeah. So, look at uh, back at Romans 6. <clears throat> Uh, go back to the first few verses of what how Paul argues here. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Uh, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we, might, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And he goes on. That first line, how can we who died to sin in verse 2? How can we who died to sin still live in it? You know that phrase, you know, something is dead to you? Sometimes we say it humorously, like it's almost like, oh, that's dead to me. Uh, but w if you take the phrase seriously, if something is dead to you, you no longer have a taste for it. You no longer have an enjoyment of it. If it's, it, this is horrible, if it's a relationship and you say someone is dead to you, which is not good. Uh, if that happens, it's like there's no relationship anymore. We don't want to be around each other. We don't want to talk to each other. That's the idea. Well, Paul says the nature of Christian conversion is to change the way your affections are towards sin. It is a, it's an objective change. Like something happens to you. If you're genuinely born again and you have saving faith, you now find sin distasteful in a way that you formerly perhaps did not before your conversion. And so if you've died to sin, if you're dead to sin, it's like I'm dead to that. There might be moments where we slip up and we, we get into sin, but we cannot live with the prodigal in the pigsty. You, you can't live there. You cannot make your home there. Like, yeah, you can trip up and fall into the mud, but you cannot make a home in the mud like a pig. You know, the pig says, I love this. The, the, the mud is my home. This is where I love to be. But as a Christian, you, your nature no longer will let you stay in the muck and mire of sin. It is now dead to you. So there might be temp temporary moments of sin, but there will not be an unbroken pattern of sin. Unrepentant, lifelong sin is the mark of someone who's not yet truly converted. Uh, someone who, who hates their sin, fights their sin, repents of their sin, and occasionally falls into their sin, that's the mark of a Christian. And so th they have they've died to sin, and they now have a new life in Christ. Fred? 
you know, we, we've, uh, this is uh, Jerry Bridges, uh, he says that we've, uh, we've died to the guilt of sin and the, and the reign and dominion of sin in our lives, which is just what you got through saying, Mark. And uh, it's, I, I, I think you guys have, in various ways have, have experiences where some pattern, some sinful habit uh, you've died to, and, but it comes back to haunt you and plague you, but, but you can't go back. You, you, you may flirt with it, you may play with it, you may be tantalized by it, but you just, you're dead to it. Uh, you know, he, he says this in, in, in Galatians uh, um, 2.20, you know, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, this is Paul, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, uh, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So he's, he's just confirming that he's died. He's been crucified with Christ, which is our position. Well, I think um, going in that too, um, you know, we died to sin. You know, obviously, we didn't physically die. Jesus is the one who physically died. But through our faith in him, we're united to him in his death so that his death counts for us. You know, it counts on our account. Um, and so there has been a decisive break in us. And I was trying to think, you know, you talked about, like, it doesn't taste the same. It doesn't whatever. Like, all right, you, you might not have ever thought you'd get a positive illustration from COVID. But I've got one coming for you, okay? Some of you, you know, you might not have had it, but you know people who have. They get, they had COVID, and they lost their taste. Some people lost it completely. Some people, it affected certain aspects of their taste. Um, and what was it? Some of my, my students last year um, who had had it were like, you know, like when I eat meat, it just tastes like like ashes or something weird or dust. or um, And it's not everything. And it's like when we become believers, what the, the, the new life that God imparts, the break with sin that has been made, um, affects how we enjoy sin. Um, because, let's be honest, we sin because it's enjoyable. Nobody sins, you know, forcibly. We do, it, we do what we do because we want what we want. Um, and so, but when you become a believer, it's like you said, it's like all of a sudden, you can still do it, but it doesn't taste the same. You're like... This isn't as enjoyable. It's it's emptiness. It's ashes. It's it, it's it doesn't satisfy the reward that I thought I was going to get. That I used to think I was getting is actually it's nothing. It's like and so like it, and it's something like you, if you've experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. It's like all of a sudden sin's just not as enjoyable as it used to be. It's not to say if you you you, you it's not enjoyable. But it's like all of a sudden you realize that this is this is lacking, this is empty, this is deficient. It can't satisfy, it can't sustain like I used to think it could. First, first John says a little bit different way. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So practicing sin is kind of like what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about like a medical doctor. You know that that profession is so consumed by by their jobs 
that, that that's they practice medicine. So the, the analogy can be made to sin. That's what we do. We make a practice of sinning from the time we wake up. To, if if you do that, or if we do that, uh, we're not regenerated. An illustration. I remember a man talking about adopting some children from. I think it was a Russian orphanage. It was a pretty pretty crazy situation, a horrible situation that these two children were rescued out of. But uh, one part of the story that kind of it kind of chokes you up a little bit when you think about it. But he he finally, after a long process, they're able to finally adopt these children. They get them on the plane. They fly them back to the U.S. And uh, he said that, and these are young children. I don't remember a couple of years old. You know, I don't know two or four or something around there. The two kids. And uh, he said it took them a number of months before they stopped hiding food. At, during a meal because they didn't know if they would get another meal. So they weren't trusting their parents yet because they were used to the orphanage where food was inconsistent. And so if you have extra food, you hide it somewhere because you, you may not get another meal. So the, their legal standing had completely changed. That's like justification, right? We're no longer in the kingdom of darkness. We're now in the kingdom of Christ. So our legal standing has changed, but there are old habits from the other kingdom that stick with us for a while that we have to slowly give up as we learn to trust that God... That Dad is good, right? That our parents love us, that, that God the Father loves us. He's a true father. And so instead of sort of, uh, you know, acting in a way that says, I, I doubt his love, I'm going to do things that sort of show I don't trust him. I don't think he's really, you know, going to do what's good and right for me. Instead of that, over time, that pattern begins to break. And we start to realize obeying my father is actually what is best for me, for my joy, for my fulfillment, for what is good for others, what is, what is most honoring to him. Obedience is freedom and joy, not sin. And isn't that, that's the daily battle. Like, where is freedom and joy to be found? Like, saying this word of gossip, which I just really want to share it because it's like, no one knows this and I know it and I'm going to tell somebody because it kind of feels good to let be the insider on something. Like, that kind of has this kind of sticky kind of pleasure to it that you know it's not right, but you want to do it because it kind of maybe puffs you up and whatever it may be. And it kind of, you have the knowledge, oh, you must know everything. Like, you must have this insider scoop. And people start coming to you. That, that, there's that kind of like real evil sort of leaning there in all of us to want to have that. And so when you have that piece of gossip, somehow you have this piece of knowledge that, that you don't need to be sharing you feel like more pleasure is in the giving of that when you shouldn't give it. And how do you find out, no, no, there is more joy in not sharing that, in keeping my mouth closed, in actually honoring the Lord and not sharing. So people are not going to have that elevated view of me, and they're not, you know, on and on, but I have to know that there is more freedom and joy in doing what is right, and afterwards there isn't that horrible feeling afterwards of having slandered someone. I'm just using one example, but like you, you start to realize freedom and joy is in the obedience to Jesus, not in disobedience. And over time, uh, these children stopped hiding their food after the meal because they, they knew that, that their parents were going to care for them and they were going to give them what's, what's best. I want to share some good news. Look at verse um, 7 in this. He says, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Um... If you're in Christ, then you've died with Christ. And if you've died with Christ, you've died, and therefore sin is no longer your slave master. Because we, we wonder sometimes, as we're struggling against our sin, can I overcome this? Can I gain victory? And the answer is yes. yes. The answer is yes. Not mm -hmm. to say that it's easy, not to say that it's immediate, but the answer is yes. Why? Because you've been set free in Christ. Like, this is one of the most precious truths you can get a hold of. And it's one of those, you know, we've talked a lot about preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach this to yourself every day. You've been set free from sin in Christ. You've been set free from sin in Christ. Paul's going to go on to say, um, where is it at? 
um, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Um, death has no dominion over Christ because he rose from the dead. Because you're in Christ, sin has no dominion over you. That means it's not your master. Preach that to yourselves when you struggle. That doesn't mean you'll get immediate victory, never struggle with it again, but it does mean you're sowing something in your heart, in your mind. You're training yourself to, to know a truth, and the, the power of Christ is in that truth. So that's why we cling to the truth, and we remember it often. You've been set free from sin. It's not your master anymore. Let me just jump in there. So, yeah. so just, I mean, I'm preaching to myself on this point, uh, but you never have to sin. There, there, I mean, it, I, I'm not talking about Christian perfectionism here. D don't worry. I know that we all do fail. But there is never a temptation that comes to you in the week that you have to say yes to. You can say no by God's grace to any of the temptations that come to you during the week. You, you can say no by, by the Spirit, put it to death. And like I think in 1 Corinthians 10, when it says no temptation has overtaken you, that is not common to man, and God is what? Faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but in that temptation, he will give you the ability to endure, to, to not have to give in. So when, when a temptation comes your way, uh, we don't need to make excuses. If we have sinned, we need to take the full blame, confess it, repent, get back up, and keep going. But if there's a temptation sitting in front of you, staring at you during the week, whatever it may be on a particular day or a particular moment, uh, you don't have to say yes. You, you can, by God's grace, put it to death by the Spirit and say no. And uh, there are stories, I mean, enormous stories of victory of people who have gone from a pattern of just persistent sin to really being able to, to uh, resist lots of different temptations over, over a period of their Christian, their Christian walk. I... Uh... We're going to go there, but uh, Romans uh, eight thirteen is uh, reads, Let's flip there. reads this way. Uh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You know Romans deals a lot with walking in the flesh or walking after the Spirit. And if he says if you live by the flesh, you're going to die. Well, J.J. Uh, Owen, the Puritan writer, wrote an 87-page uh, pamphlet or, on this particular verse. Mm -hmm. uh, he actually wrote a two... He was quite, quite the writer. He wrote a two-million-word <laughs> commentary on Hebrews. Yes, he did. It was, it was uh, seven of his 23rd total volumes of works was two million words. But anyway, he wrote 87 page uh, document on this on this particular verse be killing sin or it'll be killing you and that was a genesis for our fight club at, mm -hmm. at Watkinsville uh, we were trying to teach young men uh, this was a young men's class how to fight sin and 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 using the word using scripture using the spirit uh, and uh, practical applications and that type thing and addressing again 20-somethings, uh, and uh, I, I don't know. I think it was it was effective. It was effective for me. I went away every day convicted that that that, that, that I needed to be fighting sin, as J.J. says, and, and or that's not J.J.'s verse. Right, but, as Paul but, says. But he, he, he's emphasizing that, so mortification of the flesh. And I remember Spurgeon said that, one of the weapons, one of the primary weapons we should use to kill our sin is the spear that pierced Jesus' side, which is a poetic way of saying that the cross needs to be front and center. I mean, seriously, like if you're being tempted in any kind of way, 
spend the next five minutes just thinking about Jesus being spit upon. Just, you're, you're, you're in the middle of temptation. If you can find a moment, get alone, and just think about the fact that soldiers spit on Jesus' face. Just five minutes. Think about what that... And imagine that in my sinfulness, I would have done the same thing. Think about that for five minutes. And see if your sin doesn't start to become more repulsive to you in that moment. Think for five minutes about the crown of thorns and all that that represents. Think for five minutes about the nails through, through the hands and feet. I mean, just we don't ever want to ignore the physical aspect of his suffering. The primary was the wrath of God. But let's not forget the physical. Just think about what Jesus did for you until uh, sin begins to be ugly again. Until it's no longer so attractive, it just starts to look, I don't want anything to do with that. That's what crucified Jesus. And whatever killed my best friend is not a friend of my own. Like, I, I cannot be friends with something that killed my friend. And so, you know, Spurgeon tells this crazy story. I mean, this is fiction. He's just making it up. But he said, imagine that you had uh, a close friend, or I think it may have been a brother, who was murdered. And he said, this horrific murder has taken place, and they find the murder weapon. And it's this knife. That's been, that's been used. They said, what would someone think of you if they came to your house and you, like, had the knife in, like, a prized position in your home? Like, like you had it set up over the, over the mantle or something. Like, it's like, like a, a prize position. They would think you were a lunatic. Like, wh- what are you talking about? Like, you clearly hated your brother. Like, you clearly despised him because you're, you're treasuring the very thing that was used to kill him. And he said, oh, Christian, hate your sin. Do not treasure your sin. Do not prize your sin. It is the very thing that was used to kill your Savior. And he said, how can anyone be a friend of what, what crucified Christ? And, and so uh, the, the cross needs to be front and center. Like, Paul's putting the cross all in these chapters. We, we, were, we died with Christ. Like, think about what that means for, uh, seriously, a few minutes. Just stop if you can and think about it. And, and as you think about it, uh, pray that the Lord uh, make it sink in and be real to you that this is ugly, what I'm thinking about doing. It's, it's, it's not just wrong. It's, it's evil. It's wicked. It's ugly. Uh, and that can help begin to to get dis, uh, distaste in our mouth for the for the sin. We've talked about uh, reckoning, uh, verse 11 in, in chapter 6 says, so you must consider or reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The same reckoning that Abraham went through when he, through faith, believed and was counted to him as righteousness. So we need to think that way, that we're, we're, we're reckoned as dead to sin. And I think there's a there's a mental process here that's at work, and 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 the spirit will help guide you and help you and lead you in this process. I think one of the reasons why we stress scripture in this, um, that's you know we try not to just be creative with what we're saying. I mean, Paul clearly says in Ephesians six when he's talking about spiritual warfare that the sword speaks of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So what is the Spirit of God going to use as a weapon in you and through you to fight your sin but the Word of God? And that's why we talk about know these verses, know these passages, um, be familiar with what it teaches because this, you're, you're, you're opening yourself up to the Spirit of God to use that as a sword to help you slay your sin as it presses in. Because that, that imagery of the sword, you know, we, we get used to uh, thinking like Lord of the Rings, you've got Aragorn, you know, he's got, you know, the big, huge, broad sword he can just make big, sweeping things with. No, this was a shorter sword for when you were close in combat. You've got your shield, you've got your sword, people are coming in close, and you make stab movements as they're pressing in. That's the kind of sword this is. It's for the up-close, in-your-face, hand-to-hand type of combat um, where you're surrounded by enemies and you're doing everything you can to, to survive. 
That's the kind of sword. And so it's in those moments when it feels like sin is really pressing in, that's when we make use of the scriptures and we say, God, help me believe this, help me trust this, uh, Holy Spirit work through this, um, because this is my weapon against it. So that's why we make such a big deal about the scriptures. Um, and, you know, and, and one of the things we talk about in sanctification is, I'm kind of getting ahead, um, is the importance of regular Bible reading. Mm-hmm. Um, like a Christian who um, doesn't read their Bible is like a soldier who never trains with a sword. Like, just throw you into battle, but you've never picked it up. You've never learned how to wield it. You've never strengthened your arms for a long... Because battles get long. Your arms get heavy having to carry everything. Um, the only way we can train our... We can be strong for those moments is when we train on a daily basis. Um, soldiers don't go into the field unprepared. They go knowing how to fight. They go having been trained to endure in the fight. And so if we want to successfully fight sin, we've got to spend regular time in the Word. And I'm not saying you got to have like a two and a half hour quiet time every day. That's just not possible. But I mean, even if you spend 10 to 15 minutes a day where your focus is on the Word of God and everything else is blocked out and you are reading a section or a passage um, or even you get hung up on one verse, you know, and you get it right in its context, like you are strengthening yourself for the battle. You're training yourself to fight. And so make the most of your opportunities to read the Bible. That's good. Uh, ben Cunningham, who's a member in our church, he, he's been in Army Reserves for a while, and he just got, he's going to be going to the Middle East for about nine months. And um, just as an illustration of this, we should, we should be praying for him just because of how, how much of a, you know, that's, that's I'm glad, I, oh, that would be hard. That would be a hard nine months. But at the, for the first three months, they took him from, from here in Athens, and they took him to Texas. And for three months, he, I think he's still doing it right now, uh, they, they put him through kind of like an, another kind of training uh, situation before going there. And, uh, you know, common sense here. Why do they do that? Well, he's already been trained, you know, so he, he does training you know, every so often. So why does he go for three months before going to the Middle East? And the answer is you don't just go from, you know, regular everyday life here to Iraq or Iran. You know, you don't, you don't just do that. So they, they, they send you there for three months, and what are they doing? They're, they're, they're getting them back into the mindset of, of what this is like. And so he has three months of training before going into the middle of what, you know, you don't know what you're going to face. And so similarly, spiritually, uh, we, we can't just go from, you know, vegging on the couch to, like, fighting sin. You know, we, we, we need to really be in training mode. We, we need to be, like, on a, a, a daily, like, that's what you're saying, the daily part of it. We need to be prepared at all times for, for whatever may come our way. Uh, so always be with that that mindset. There is no, as Jerry Edgar would say, uh, there's no spiritual vacation. Uh, there's physical vacation, but he said don't take a spiritual vacation ever because as soon as you take a vacation spiritually, you're just setting yourself up for failure uh, in, in one way or another. I think it was John Owen, and I'm going to butcher the quote. I know I've said this before, but it's something to the effect of, like, our, our sin, when, when it seems like it's least active, it's probably the most active. Um, and in light of the, the fact that we don't get a vacation from fighting sin, if, if, you know, if, we're, if we're in a season where it seems like, man, I'm not struggling, you watch know, out. one, be thankful that you're not in the heat of the battle, but two, watch out. It's coming. Because it's coming. Immerse yourself more in the Word. Immerse yourself more in prayer um, in those seasons where it doesn't seem like sin is yep. rearing its head as much because, yeah, it's, it's coming. Um, it's preparing a new battle, a new strategy. Um, you know, and here's, here's the thing, guys. Um, sin is this operating principle that is incredibly creative. Okay, in Romans 7, what, where is I'm gonna Let me see if I can find it really quickly. When Paul's talking about... Um, 
Okay, Romans 7, verse 7. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin. By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So, here's the thing. Sin is always looking for creative ways to ensnare you. You might think, I have conquered this particular sin and temptation, but sin, the way it works, again, we're, we're giving it personification here, but it's, it's like it's scheming new ways to try to trap you in sins you thought you had already beaten. Um, and that's what Paul says. You know, sin produced in me all kinds of covetousness. It's not just, okay, I know I shouldn't covet. Sin looks at that and says, oh, here's a hundred ways you can. And not only does it say, here's how you can, it makes you want to. And so that's why we say when you are in a season where it might, you might be like, man, I'm not struggling as much. Life is good. Train harder, train harder, train harder, because sin is at work. Sin is at work, and it's going to pop up at random places, in random times, in ways you might not be prepared for if you're slacking off spiritually, and it'll get you. An example would be, you know, they get to Mount Sinai, they just went through the Red Sea, the Passover, the plagues, they've never seen more of God active in a supernatural way than this, and God, Moses is up there getting the Ten Commandments and the Covenant written in the, with the finger of God. I don't even know what that exactly means, but God is writing it with his own hand uh, up there on the mountain, and what are they doing? They're worshiping a golden calf. I mean, just at the very moment you thought it would be least likely that there would be a mass you know, apostasy turning from God and, and idolatry, this is the moment it's least likely to happen. Like, the Egyptian gods are clearly not there. They're not real. Uh, they're, they're demonic, but they're not real gods. And this is the true God who conquered them. And he's up on a mountain. There's fire and thunder, and our leader is up there. Hey, Aaron, can you uh, cook up a little golden calf with our golden jewels? And so it just it seems unthinkable. But at that high moment, they fail royally. And so we, we, we will have similar moments where, you know, it's similar. Like Elijah after Mount Carmel, mm-hmm. what happens? He's depressed, wanting to die. He ends up at going back to Mount Sinai, of all places, to Mount Horeb. And he ends up back there depressed, wanting God to take his life. And, you know, God speaks to him in this still small voice and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And on and on. There's all these examples of the feeding of the 5,000, right? Feeding of the 5,000 was pretty amazing. Twelve baskets left over, one for each apostle. This is great. What happens that night? Storm on the sea and Jesus is not there. And Jesus comes walking to them on the water. I mean, just it is normal that you have a high moment followed by a low moment. And so d- don't expect, oh, I had a high moment this week. Like, I was mountaintop with God. Like, it was amazing. Okay, Tuesday you could fall. So don't, don't sit there and think, oh, I had a great weekend with God. Okay, this week I'm good. I'm just going to coast. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. That, that's where some of the worst stuff happens. King David, at the height of his royal throne, walks out and there's Bathsheba. I mean, it, it, the moment oftentimes that people feel less uh, likely to fall is when they're most vulnerable. What yeah. you're saying is don't revel in your victories. Yes. No. Explain that, Pump. Well, Oswald Chambers talks a lot about this, actually, about mountaintop experiences. And he's not uh, negating the value of mountaintop experiences, such as Mount Carmel or something like that. But he's saying they're, they're intended to teach you something, a principle, that you need to go back down from the mountaintop in the valley and apply it in your everyday life. So that's, that's bottom line explanation is that he's you're always learning you're always growing and and being taught but use that revelation in your everyday mundane life so that you will not covet Mm -hmm. or be susceptible to some form of covetousness for example that's good Uh, okay Romans 6 again uh, we'll flip back there for a second look at verse 15 
what then? Are we to continue in sin uh, because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to, there's our word, sanctification. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, that, that one's, I mean, this passage is packed with all kinds of stuff. But I, I love the idea here of verse 21. Think back on your pre-Jesus days in your life and think about the stuff you were involved in and think about how miserable that whole that whole thing was just look back at your past and look at your the stuff you're ashamed of meditate on that too and allow that also to be a motivator to to not want to dabble in that kind of thing something too you know he says do not present your this is verse 16 do not present or do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves you are slaves of the one whom you obey either sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness you know think about presenting yourselves to to sin as an obedient slave um, meaning you're willingly giving yourself over to it you know if, if if we think back when we're when we give in to a temptation to sin and you you can think of anything specific you know that you might do and you're like why did i do that more often than not we don't give in to that just in the moment um usually if you struggle with a particular sin whether it's anger uh fear despondency lust whatever um, usually if, if you reach a point where you give into that in some way, it didn't just start then. It started like six hours ago. Something happened, and if you think back, you know that if you respond this way when certain types of things happen, it leads you to start responding certain other ways, which just make you more and more vulnerable to the point that when that particular temptation comes... You're you're already like weakened and ready to give in. Does mm-hmm. that make that makes sense? If you if you trace it back, you can almost always find it wasn't the immediate thing. It was something several steps behind that that started the process that got you to the point to where you even would consider. Because you know earlier in the day you get up, you're like, man, I'm on fire for the Lord. I read my Bible. I prayed. I feel full. Um, it was a great time. Why would, you know, no way I'm going to give in to sin. Then something comes in and it interrupts your consistent, it interrupts your focus. It interrupts your, your joy for a moment and you respond a certain way. And because you respond that way, it leads you down a new train, um, a new path that eventually leads you to give in. And so be aware of, for lack of a better word, triggers that start you on a certain path that will eventually lead you into sin. The first thing might not necessarily be sin, but if you're not responding in the right way and you're not careful, it will eventually lead you down the path to it. On that note, just turn to Romans 13, because this is, a, I think, a very similar idea here. If you know St. Augustine's sto- story from back in the 300s A.D., he was converted reading these verses here. 
Romans 13, verse 11, uh, Paul writes, Besides this, you know the time that, uh, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Uh, and uh, I don't have time to tell the St. Augustine's story, but as you know, he was trapped in rampant sexual morality, just like really bad. And he did not want to let go of it. And he was, he was, he was actually like walking around like, uh, didn't know if he wanted to trust God or not, didn't know if he wanted to repent or not. He couldn't choose because he felt like he was being torn in two directions. And uh, he, he heard, you know, this is a little bit mystical kind of stuff, but he heard a child nearby singing the song Tole Lege, Take and Read, Take and Read. He said, I've never heard a child's song that says Take and Read. So he's like, I guess I'll just go over to my Bible and just take it and read. So he did what I don't normally recommend people do. He just grabbed Open a collection of Paul's letters and he opened it up and he's, you know, he's trying to figure out, should I stop my immorality or not? He flips it open randomly and the verses he lands on are verses 13 and 14. I'll read it one more time. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. At that moment, Augustine said his tears stopped. He had been, he had been hitting himself on the head, curled up in a ball, like doing all kinds of stuff. Like he was freaking out. Well, as soon as he read that, it was, it was just like calm. He just said, okay, like I am turning from my sin and I'm trusting in Christ. And th those were his those were his that conversion was verses. And of course, his mother Monica was praying for him 24 17. <laughs> That's right. Well, I think we are, yeah, we are out of time. Yeah. Greg, can you close us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. God, we thank you, um, Lord, for these few moments to consider this doctrine of sanctification. Um, Lord, it's, it's so vital that we get this right. Um, Lord, it's so vital that we understand the daily battle that we are involved with, the, the fact that we don't get to take a vacation from fighting sin. Um, Lord, that, that's hard to accept at first, but it's also helpful long term, Lord, because it helps us set our minds in a new way. Um, every day, we have got to fight to, uh, to put off the old man and put on the new, to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you will work in everyone in this room and those who might be listening uh, now or later. Um, God, please grant the grace to get involved in this battle in the right way, Lord, to have the right mindset to fight our sin, to give it no quarter, to, um, to make no provision for it. God, to recognize that in Christ we have the resources, the strength, and the freedom to say no to sin and yes to you, to walk in your ways, not in the old ways that we used to walk, but in the new way of the Spirit, in the new way that is in Christ. Um, and I pray, Lord, for, for folks in here who might be struggling, um, Lord, who, who might be wondering if they can overcome certain patterns in their lives. I pray, Lord, in your mercy, you would show them even this week that they can overcome that, not just for a moment, but for, for a habit and for, for a lengthy time, for the rest of their lives. They can gain more and more victory, Lord, over these things that right now it might seem hopeless. Um, Lord, may they, may they experience that, uh, the reality of what we've been talking about um, this afternoon. So God, be with us in that special way and prepare our hearts now to, uh, to gather as a, as a full church to worship you and hear your word and to pray and sing. We pray that, that Christ would be exalted, um, that our hearts would be drawn to him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Enjoy your last moments of air conditioning as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, the next thank room. you.